Hey guys, this episode is about the rock and roll backward masking satanic panic of the 1980s, and it's one of my favorite episodes of Deviate. It was originally broadcast back in season one, and I wanted to drop it as an encore this week, in part to give myself more time to finish an in-depth essay episode set to coincide with a certain milestone birthday I have coming up next week. So for now, please sit back and enjoy the retro energy of 1980s satanic panic. If you're into rock and roll today, let me warn you that you may have already been conditioned to become part of this Antichrist or Anti-Jesus Christ system. Now, Satan is using the rock groups as his patsies to evangelize the youth of the world. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I explore another musical mystery from the 1980s, specifically the role that Satan, or at least the idea of Satan, played in the songs iconic rock bands were singing at the time. Indeed, as weird as it might seem now, many people believed in the notion of satanic backward masking, this idea that dangerous subconscious messages were being encoded into rock records and could be exposed for the evil that they were when you played those records in reverse. I was actually introduced to this concept at age 10 when I went to a church presentation with my friend Jared. Now, I went to a mainline Lutheran church that was earnest and liturgical and a tad predictable, whereas Jared went to more of a holy roller evangelical church. And on this night, a pastor had come all the way up from Louisiana to talk about the evils of rock and roll, and he played LPs backward right there in church to prove it. Now, again, I was just 10 years old, so the sound of rock playing backwards really creeped me out, if nothing else because it just sounded so weird. So when the pastor asked audience members to come to the front of the church to confess their rock and roll sins, I was one of the first to go forward. Now, I didn't know it at the time because I wasn't evangelical, but this is what is known as an altar call. And really, the altar call was not aimed at 10-year-olds like me. It was aimed at the 16-year-old heavy metal dudes with their feathery mustaches and Black Sabbath t-shirts who sat slumped in the back row. As it happened, the only album I owned at the time was the Village People's Cruisin', which the pastor said was pushing, quote, the homosexual agenda. To be honest, I had asked for that album for Christmas three years earlier, not because I was exploring alternative sexuality, but because, like every other seven-year-old in America, I had really liked the song YMCA, which all the kids liked to spell out with their arms when it came on at the skating rink. Notwithstanding this fact, Jared's father bought a copy of the pastor's book, which was called Backward Masking Unmasked, and Jared, being the concerned Christian friend he was, made a photocopy for me. Now, all these years later, when I talk about the books that captured my imagination when I was young, I usually recall books like The Boxcar Children or The Fellowship of the Ring, or a little later, Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions. But if I was to really be honest about this, I would also mention Backward Masking Unmasked, at first because it gave me visions of demons lurking in LP records, but later, and I'm talking a couple years later, like when I was 12 or so, and a little less credulous, I used the book as a source of hard facts about cool bands like ACDC and Pink Floyd at a time when I didn't have the disposable income to buy Hit Parader or Rolling Stone magazine. In short, Backward Masking Unmasked was meant to turn me away from rock and roll, but in the end, it only made the music seem more mysterious and compelling. Now, the twist here is that as the 1980s progressed and I became more and more skeptical of the idea that Satan was influencing rock and roll, American culture at large, including Congress people and law enforcement officials, began to treat Satanism as an actual social problem. 
So in this episode of Deviate, I roll up my sleeves and dig into the wonders and idiosyncrasies of 1980s satanic panic. With a little help from my go-to rock music gurus, Jed Bodwin and Michael Carmody, you might remember them from episode 12, which covered the forgotten corporate rock albums of the 1980s. This time around, I bought Jed and Michael used copies of Backward Masking Unmasked on eBay, and together we sat down at KMUW Studios and discussed the book, as well as the satanic panic of the 1980s in general, in the manner of a Bible study. So let's listen in. Backwards Masking Unmasked, uh, which is a strangely organized book. And let's dig into it. I'll let you guys sure. uh, join the conversation a little bit. Like the back half is sort of an alphabetical description of how various bands are evil. And that was a real resource for me. I'd, like if I wanted to know about ACDC, if I liked their song on the radio, I could go back and find out oh, no. um, what ACDC you, stood for. You don't. <laughs> you don't like that. <laughs> which is apparently a, a euphemism for bisexuality. Right. Uh, I was shocked to learn about the Captain and Tennille. <laughs> right. Well, Bette Midler has a listing <laughs> yes. in, John Denver. in the back of this. And, and so just people like we're holding the book again like a Bible study right now, but listeners won't know that it's the first half is sort of this circuit preacher uh, condemnation of very ca- various categories of rock and roll, including backward masking, but also Aleister Crowley. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole chapter on Led Zeppelin. And there's actually a whole uh, chapter on the Eagles, which is a little <laughs> bit credulous to me. Uh, and, and just for reference, I have a few sections of the book um, that I'm going to read from, the, from Jacob Aranza's book. Uh, it actually has an introduction uh, by Louisiana, Louisiana State Senator Bill Keith, who sort of endorsed this. But this is what he says. What's wrong with rock and roll? Plenty. It affects tens of millions of young people and adults in America and around the world. Rock music is laced with lyrics exalting drugs, immorality, homosexuality, violence, and rebellion. As if this wouldn't be enough, there is now a more sinister danger. It's called backward masking. Backward masking is a phrase created to describe the technique that rock groups are using to convey satanic and drug-related messages to the subconscious. This technique is used by someone saying something forward, which intentionally means something else played backward. Another way this can be used is by taking one of many tracks that are used in recording an album and playing one secret message mixed into the album at a very low level backwards. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. He's quoting this scientist's. So he's he's quoting sort of this pseudoscientist. Where was the scientist from, too? It's like the... Topeka Institute. <laughs> right. No, it's William H. Yarrell II, president of Applied Potentials Institute. Right. Uh, <laughs> and so it's like it's like the sort of it's like something that somebody would make up for a horror movie. You it's know? like right like, stairs above an expired J.C. Penney store. That's where the office is. <laughs> right, right. Right. So he wasn't going. Uh, to, to to Louisiana State, let alone, you know, the University of Michigan uh, psychology department. So he quotes mis- uh, Mr. Yale saying, actually, if somebody said to you, Satan is God, you would immediately reject it because your check valve, the reticular activating system, would reject it. But if you had, if you heard dogsinatas a number of times, <laughs> which is Satan is God backwards, it would be quote, decoded by the uh, right part or the creative part of your brain and stored as a fact Exclamation point. Um, So um, basically, he sets up this book by saying that uh, the message, that there's satanic messages embedded in rock and roll. What did you guys think of this book? 
And then, then how were how did you guys take it? We're all roughly the same age. Oh, how did it, you take it back in the day? It took me way back. I'm sure Jed has stories of his. You're largely uh, scared of the devil upbringing, right? Well, I, I mean, the the weird thing is, is I had uh, so I was raised Catholic. And I had two brothers who actually attended ser- uh, uh, seminary for a period of time, but we weren't a particularly devout family. Um, my mom had converted; she had been raised Lutheran, and uh, so she didn't have a real like strong Catholic faith. It was mostly because my dad was Catholic, and that allowed them to get married in the church. And he wasn't, uh, you know, French Catholics are not particularly. There's there's not a lot to get excited about if you're French Catholic. <laughs> so so um, that wasn't part of our, my, my parents, you know, my, my older brother was 16 years older, so he lived through the 60s and all that stuff. So my parents were really pretty permissive in terms of that. I had cousins, however, who were evangelical Catholic types, because mm. by the late 70s, early 80s, there's this evangelical movement that's sort of creeping in. I think they called it the charismatic movement that's creeping into the Catholic Church and so, well, after Roe versus Wade, I think yeah, that was a lot of political ripples through a lot of churches. Exactly. So my cousin David was telling me about how Gene Simmons of Kiss uh, had once been a woman. How he had a, a <laughs> Gene Simmons has never been a woman. <laughs> had a cow's tongue grafted onto his own. Uh, Kiss stood for uh, Knights in Satan's Service, or according to our author here, uh, Kids in Satan's Service. Uh, I, I think Knights in Satan's Service is a little more formidable. Yeah, they're not kids; they're grown men. Yeah, they're grown men. Uh, on and on, and so. Um, that was always a little wacky to me because it, it was like this just I mean even as a eight nine year old I was like really a cow's tongue grafted how do you do how is that surgery how does that go down um, so in in my home that stuff all did seem sort of whack but there were kids around me who were being introduced to this and I was I was starting to have these conversations like really I think there's an urban myth aspect to all of this sure. too this yeah. was in the pre fact verification age Mm -hmm. but this book in particular came out right when mtv was blowing up too yeah Uh, and so it feels very transitional yeah uh, in terms of how people were discovering music and 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 by the time this book was bubbling up or by the time this book came out uh it was a time where you could just turn on the tv see what bands look like see how they had decided to present themselves but before that there was a mysteriousness a mystique it's true yeah uh and and that's and if you're eight nine ten years old man then you it's exciting actually to hear the to just sort of think about a bovine tongue being grafted onto a guy (laughs) Uh, i remember um i remember uh at that age, people said Kiss has never been seen without their makeup on. Right, right. That that they are this secretive group, uh, and I think this is mentioned in the book that there was a comic book that was printed with in their part, blood. In their yeah. blood, actually, on this day in '77 was the day they delivered the vial of blood. I was doing my music history thing this morning, and that was one of today's facts. So that was 41 years ago today. They literally delivered vials of their blood to the comic book plant in upstate New York to go into the red ink in the Kiss comic book. Uh, amazing. And and I had kids at elementary school would trade Kiss cards, yeah. um, and much like Star Wars cards or baseball cards. And this was in the late 70s. So yeah. that was before, and we'll get into sort of the, the, the historical and pop cultural factors that fed this book and, and, um, and what came after. But uh, yeah, so Kiss was definitely something that weirdly... Uh, 
appealed to kids. I was yeah. terrified of Kiss. Like I was, they had the devil written all over them, and I heard all those rumors, and I was not into it. They brought a Kiss pinball machine into the bowling alley in Arc City, and uh, it spooked me. Arc City, Kansas, which, yeah, which is where you grew up. Yeah. Now, did you have a, a religious? Uh, upbringing or affiliation at all? Well, I went to church all the time as a child, but my parents didn't. I lived with my mother and stepfather, and they slept in. We got picked up by a church bus and taken to the Church of Christ, which was not overtly, like, weirdly conservative or whatnot. I'm sure a lot of those people might have been personally, but that wasn't the vibe there. And they don't have musical instruments in the church either, so it was all acapella singing. It was really nice, actually. We had a racially mixed uh, congregation for a small Kansas town, too. There were a lot of African Americans in our community. And, uh, you know, I had a nice church experience, and it was actually kind of a break from my home life, which was not that great. And so I'm sure probably, I'm not even sure where I started hearing about the devil being involved in music, but I remember specifically like Kiss, Blue Oyster Cult, I found some cassettes in the street one day, and I was like, all right, free music. And one of them was a Blue Oyster Cult tape, and one was Sticks's Pieces of Eight, and I pulled the tape out of them and threw them away because somebody had spooked me. Yeah, yeah. There was a there was a component of Sticks, of course, because of the name. Right. Had this, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, this, this is the band that brought us Lady. Right. <laughs> well, well, Black Sabbath, too. I mean, there were yeah. certain bands that by their very right. name— seems scary but i think it's interesting that your church was was sort of a fairly even keeled place yeah. you, you came from a catholic tradition that was that was sort of cultural as much as it was religious i came from uh, a lutheran church and i remember asking my pastor once when are we going to study cults and he's here um well, if you want to learn, when counterfeiters study money or when they learn how to identify fake money, they identify real money. They don't, they don't study fake money. So I had a very cerebral Lutheran pastor yeah, who sort of good. steered us away from revelations. And so I think for me, and I think maybe for the American cultural in general, the reason evangelical Christianity um, was finding adherence is that it was more interesting, right? <laughs> like in, in our Lutheran church, we were learning, well, Jesus actually teaches you to be ethical. I mean, we were learning those lessons. We're outside of church. It's like, yeah, rock is evil. And right. and, and I think um, evangelical churches had altar calls. They had um, more interesting music. They Drama. didn't have liturgy, right? They right. had a lot of fear, you know, like certain political people are going to instill fear in you. Rock and roll is bad for you. Movies are bad for you. Be careful about sex. Right. I'm going to give my confession. It's a very confessional culture compared to mainline religions. And I never did religions. have anybody preach to me from the pulpit about those kind of things. We yeah. mostly were sermons about love and was what I remember mostly and, you know, things that kind of promoted brotherhood in general. It was very, seemed like a gentle kind of when I think back on it. It's like I don't ever remember anybody in the pulpit making me like – feel like, oh, God, I'm going to go to hell. And so I think we've established that we all sort of came from very even-keeled religious traditions, yet we were sort our, our imaginations were captured by the idea that there might be evil rock and roll out there. I didn't have any grown-ups telling me either way, really, I don't think. You know what I mean? I didn't have anybody there to, like, I would go and ask this kind of thing, too. So it just kind of stewed in my mind, you know? I'm a child. Yeah. And yeah. I had a big imagination. Yeah. I think there was a that I mean you mentioned Blue Oyster Cult and that was maybe one of the ones where I wasn't sure because there was that strange symbol. Yeah, exactly. That That's you didn't quite know what it spooky. and then it had cult in the name. But then I was also starting to read like music magazines and so you'd see like a picture of Buck Dharma at his <laughs> at his home. with a cigarette. Yeah, <laughs> at his home in Connecticut, right? <laughs> with his room full of guitars right. and his, his washing real, his Buick. Right. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, well, <laughs> 
gosh, he he sort of looks like Mr. So-and-so whose kids go to my church. And and so I think I started to recognize that there was this uh, presentation element to the music that that uh, when I saw Dolly Parton with rhinestones on Grand Ole Opry or something like that, this was sort of the rock and roll it side. It Yeah, yeah. That, that's interesting. It didn't occur to me just now that during that era, late 70s, early 80s, you had uh, Grand Ole Opry and you had Lawrence Welk. Right. Yeah. And every once in a while, you would see uh, a rock band on a late night television show. Sure. But sure. until MTV kicked in, rock didn't really have its own. Well, there I mean, was, there's Midnight there was Special. Like Midnight Special and uh, what was it? The uh, Danny Kirshner, Don Kirshner's rock concert. Yeah. yeah. This is even pre Solid Gold. Solid Gold yeah. doesn't kick in. And if you were lucky, I had uh, my, my best friend, his parents were younger, so they were a little hip. So occasionally we'd see Saturday Night Live. Right. I managed to see that a lot because yeah. I was. Uh, almost never actually watched as a child. So I just did what I wanted mostly. So yeah. I saw a lot of that. <laughs> well, I think, uh, again, there's this, there's the, fa- there's the facts of actually what was happening in culture at that time. And then there's the, this almost tantalizing notion that music played backwards is going to right. so seed our minds <laughs> with evil, right. which is scary, but also kind of cool to, to a certain age. And I think... You could almost see a book like Backwards Masking Unmasked as young adult literature, you know, that an adult might read this and think, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Or they might think, well, this book is sort of ridiculous, but maybe it'll keep our kids from doing drugs and listening to bad music. And and so let's look at the language of this a a little bit, which just consistently, you know, as a work of literature, there's a lot of weird misspellings. There's a lot of repetition in this. And... um, uh, Jacob Aranza, the the author, sort of has a weakness for puns. Uh, <laughs> I'll find one on eight on page uh, thirty five. It could have used a good editor. <laughs> it could have used a good editor, but I think it was rushed to press. There, there's, this is a chapter about a rock and roll tombstone. So there's a whole chapter about how basically rock stars die from drug overdoses, which is actually you know that that happened. But he says as long as these rock stars are looked on as the messiahs of our age. There will be those who live through their tunes only to wind up in tombs. Ooh. And it, it's interesting that, I mean, Nick Drake and, and Ian Curtis are mentioned here, too. Yeah. So wow. it's weird that we have the Captain and Tennille's and the Bette Midler's alongside the Iron Maidens and the ACDCs. But then you actually have really interesting artists right. who he called to sort of as who told him about Nick Drake? Right, right, yeah. He, since he never even listened to a Nick Drake song, maybe he listened to Joy Division. I mean, Joy Division. That's uh, nineteen eighty. I mean, that's kind of underground for this, this right. guy. It's pretty hip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. I just now saw that they were shitting on Jehovah's Witnesses here too, including Lester Bangs, <laughs> George Benson, and Ornette Coleman. Yes. <laughs> Dave Thomas from Pear Ubu was mentioned as a Jehovah's Witness. Well, I think it's if you understand um, evangelical culture that everything Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. Uh, in fact, I think Alice Cooper is mentioned as a, as a Mormon, Mormon son, as a son of a Mormon, uh, and then Preacher, ecology. Yeah. I mean, I think he's really reaching with ecology. Um, but then the fact that like he can he can paint the eagles, which are sort of soft country rock, right. as sort of this occultic band that is somehow tied into the Church of Satan. So I'll, I'll read a little bit about this chapter. It's called "Which Way," spelled W-I-T-C-H. Are the eagles flying? <laughs> and now he, I do I do like that title. Yeah, I gotta say, which way? Well, that's, woman. That, that's him playing with language here. But it says, 
If you were to open the album, this is the Hotel California album. If you'd open this album and look on the inside cover, uh, you would see three windows on the far left side. In the middle window, if you look very closely, there's a man's face who resembles Anton LaVey, who's the founder of the Church of Satan and is called the Black Pope by his followers. Is this an accident? Hardly! Exclamation point. Well, on a recent speaking tour, we went to San Francisco looking for the Satanic Church and found the street where they used to meet. It's on California Street. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the fifth stanza of the song says, I, So I called up the captain, please bring me my wine. We haven't had that spirit since 1969. May I remind you that wine is symbolic of the Holy Spirit in Christianity? And he said that they hadn't had that spirit since 1969. That's when the Satanic Bible was copyrighted and released. So I think there's a lot of two plus two equals five detective work. Well, um, I heard that same rumor yeah. years and years ago, too, though. Did you hear that from someone somewhere yeah. along the line? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that, that, I mean, there was also that that current as you start getting older, the, the little things, the, the sort of urban legends about songs. Um, you know, How influential was this book? Maybe more so than we thought. Maybe. Right. Well, I want to come back to that. Yeah. Um, uh, but there would there would be little things like uh, it's I don't recall it being mentioned in here, but the song Inagata De Vida by uh, Iron Butterfly, which features that drum solo. Right. So there was this story when I was introduced to it, this sort of older guy said, you got to hear this song. And here's what this is about. It's about this man and woman who fall in love. But the woman's unfaithful. So he kills her and he buries her under the house. And the drum solo is her heart coming back and starting to beat. The guy can't can't think of anything, and then it right and it ends right. So there's this whole thing like, and I mean, but there was no magazine that was coming with this to with press from Iron Butterfly right. to explain this to me. There was no MTV, so it was like, ooh, well that's interesting. Yeah, so I mean the same thing with with Hotel California. Like you can look for these clues in the in the gatefold sleeve, right. and it becomes part of it. And it's like, eh, it's like Paul is dead. Yeah, I, I don't see it, uh, or I oh maybe I do see it. Oh, yeah. uh. another thing. Part of this pre MTV era of music where you had the songs, but you didn't see them like looking like dorks in their spandex on television. <laughs> right. You you sat there with the album, listened to these songs, which were good songs. Um, and you made up stories in your head. So in a way, this book might have aggregated a lot of those urban myths right. um, that had been floating around for years. And, you know, it's not a complete accident that Satanism is tied to rock and roll because, right. you know, Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil, which is very yeah. much riffing on the, you know, the old Faust story. Uh, and then Led Zeppelin sort of sort of not only taking the myth, but literally stealing a lot of the songs and, and, and making them heavier. <laughs> right. so, so in a second, I want to go back and sort of look yeah. for all the evidence that led up to this aggregation of urban myths. But I just want to I want to wallow a little bit in the joyous language and, and <laughs> absurdity of this. Before we were recording, he calls there's a little there's a short blurb on Ted Nugent, but he misspells his name and it's Ted Nugent with, yes. with two G's multiple times. Yes. So this person who who sort of in the conservative culture of our time is sort of an icon now of the, of the religious or of the right, if not the religious right, sort of has his own entry as sort of an evil person. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, uh, and and that's remarkable in in a number of ways. Uh, Ted Nugent was again somebody. I grew up in Michigan, so in a way, Ted Nugent at the time was this kind of state hero, 
and you have a culture that's largely gaming. You know, my hometown, uh, the the grocery store would make its money for the year because of hunting season. We would we would be out of school for the first day of hunting season. Ted Nugent had a newsletter that was distributed with you know here's how you make jerky and here's how you do all this. So he did a lot of things for like hunting rights, sure, and gaming rights and hunter education, gun safety. So it was this weird thing to hear people speak ill of him mm-hmm. at like. And and so had I seen something like this in 1983, I would have been, you know, what? Leave, leave the nug alone. <laughs> <laughs> I might also point out, speaking of the Eagles, that he uh, he mentions Ron Henley several yes. times in the book. <laughs> I saw it once, and it's like, oh. And then again, he refers him to Ron Henley. So yeah. um, it's interesting how actually there's um, it's clear again, like with the Ian Curtis and the Nick Drake references, that he is probably collecting information about musicians that he doesn't always know what yeah. their music is. He's just looking for evidence to, to back up the idea that rock and roll is evil. Well, I can, I can remember uh, uh, not my hometown newspaper, but the, from the town over later in the 80s, publishing this article about Satan and music. And, of course, by that point, it was much more overt. But they referenced, like, Venom and Slayer and then Earth, Wind, and Fire, who sing about metaphysical things. Right. They're always down on anybody that does transcendental meditation. Too. Yes, like that's I heard. I heard from an older person, actually, my uncle Homer, that that's how like devils get inside you. He also yeah. warned me about Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Well, I think this is a product of its time, and so I think things like the hippies got new agey, and we think of that as sort of a '60s thing. And again, we'll we'll go back and look at some hard evidence of this of the the the, the trail of evidence that leads up to this book. But I think. People were uncomfortable with the, you know, the Beatles in India type, new, new agey type stuff. And so they just decided to pour it all into one pot, you know, that right. it's Satan. It's not transcendental meditation or the Hare Krishna or ecology. You know, it's all the devil trying, trying to tear us down. One weird aside is that um, I learned about who the Grateful Dead was in this book. Yeah. And it was probably 10 years before I realized that the Grateful Dead was sort of a jam band yeah. instead of like a Slayer or Iron Maiden type metal act. Like I just assumed based on the pictures and what he talked about mm-hmm. that it like when I heard Acid Rock, I assumed that this was really heavy music. Maximum and, corrosive music, right? <laughs> exactly. That's what I thought too. And so so it's funny how there, there's these overlapping tendrils of ignorance that obviously he didn't know exactly what he was writing about. And as a kid, when I was reading this, I didn't know either. And and he has a great line, a better name couldn't have been given to this group to describe their music. I'm sure many will be grateful when their music is dead. <laughs> I, I love how in this, in this, um, in this grab bag of rock and roll offenses uh, when they get to the Aerosmith part. <laughs> he's talking you could about... just write straight reportage on them would be yeah. damning <laughs> well, enough. You, you, could re- you could do straight reportage, but it's like the main focus of the group is Steven Tyler, their lead singer. His fantasies were fulfilled when with Cynthia Fox, Sorinda Fox, whom he married after she became pregnant with his child. And so as a statement, it's like, Okay, so he got a woman pregnant and married her. Like, what? Like that doesn't seem like a very intense offense, you know? Right. That, and in fact, that that's actually within the Christian community. When you get your girlfriend pregnant, the honorable thing to do is to marry your girlfriend. So, you know, I, I think he was just he was maybe he didn't spend enough time. Re- he could have found a lot of better dirt on Aerosmith. It's like right. half a page. Yeah. But he exactly. talks about getting he gets his girlfriend pregnant. You know, people throw stuff on stage at our concerts. 
that's one of the things that it's just like the dangers of Aerosmith. People get carried away in the audience and throw things on stage. Right. Right. Well, they talked about the Bee Gees chapter talks about how, well, they didn't do cocaine, but they smoked weed sometimes, you know. Oh, my God. And, and so I'm just thinking, like, how many people in the 70s didn't do cocaine but smoked weed? I mean, you know. All of them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And maybe, and actually, there's one huge. Did you catch one huge irony in in this? What like what was the biggest imbalance uh, in the pages of these book? That's sort of a leading question, but I'm I'm curious about what idiosyncrasies jumped out. I don't know. The whole thing really just seemed laughable to me. Well, I'll just jump in right now, and you guys can riff on this if you want, or point out other idiosyncrasies. But he's talking about how rock and roll is encouraging people to be violent and and uh, you know irreverent, and then he has this three page example from the Bible about how God orders uh, the the people of his followers to kill the Amalekites, basically. Oh, right. yes. he, he, incites, <laughs> he incites this part of the Bible. It, he's trying to make a point about loyalty, you know, right. loyalty to God. But the, but the actual biblical passage he pulls out isn't from the Gospels. It's Old Testament. It isn't from the wisdom of the Old Testament. It's from the prophets of the Old Testament. Yeah. And it's about... Basically, the people of Israel is, you know, sort of deciding that God is telling them to kill everybody. Right. And, and there's a lot of weird genocidal stuff in, in some of the prophets of the Old Testament. And so he's trying to make this prim point, but he sort of counteracts all of this advice. Like what could be, you know, throwing panties on the stage or smoking dope? This is about a time in history when God ordered one tribe to kill every last living creature in another tribe. And, you know, I'm sure people who were not really given to critical thinking, that just washed right over them because right. it was out of the Bible. But in terms of pure content, you spent 50 pages of your book, you know, splitting hairs over the minor, minor offenses like transcendental meditation and ecology. Right. Then he tells a three-page story about God demanding Smite. that you kill everybody in another tribe. Uh, I think it's interesting that, that uh, Ozzy Osbourne, of course, gets flogged in this book, and he's the guy who's got the lyric, uh, maybe it's not too, lear- too late to learn how to love and forget how to hate. Right. <laughs> well, like, most of Whoa. Black Sabbath <laughs> lyrics are about avoiding going to hell. Like yeah. The song Black Sabbath is about like waking up and realizing it's too late to change your path, and now you're in hell. You yeah. know what I mean? They have all those songs like that. Well, uh, Lester Bangs, of course, had that great essay in which he called Black Sabbath the first Catholic rock band because you have Geezer Butler, who was raised sure. in the Catholic Church, and is writing all these lyrics based in part on his faith. And exactly. it's like, ooh. Well, yeah, what, but in here, <laughs> Geezer gets shit on in here, too, actually. Yeah. They talk some smack on Geezer Butler. Where is it here? Well, I want to come back to, to Dio and the devil horn oh, sign, yeah. because that's, a, that's actually, it was seen as a satanic symbol, and he sort of alludes to that here, but that comes out of Catholicism, right? Right, so the Maloic? Isn't yeah, that what yeah, Dio called yeah, it? Yeah, because like he was Warding Catholic. off the evil eye? Yeah, yeah it's his Sicilian grandmother, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Who would give this, this devil horn, or this horn sign, and, and what's the explanation for that? It's supposed to, like, ward off that you, like, someone's putting bad juju on you. It's supposed to, like, protect yeah. you. That's what I understood. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. 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 And so I think one problem here is that um, that the devil, 90% of the time, is used as a metaphor, right? Instead right. of this creature that has red skin and, a, and you know, a, a tail with a fork on it, uh which and so there's this sort of anthropomorphized Satan that comes up in books like this, when in fact metaphorically Satan is used in all sorts of different contexts. And in fact, he actually mentions in this book that in Iron Maiden, their little corpse of a mascot comes on stage and fights the devil, 
And I'm thinking, well, he's fighting the devil. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> but so, he's an abomination, Rolf. <laughs> right. Right. So so if a, if a zombie fights a devil, right. they're both bad? I yeah. don't know. Lose, lose. <laughs> yeah. So so let's rewind a little bit. No, no pun intended on the on the backwards. Let's let's examine the rock culture that informed this because there was there was experimentation with back masking that goes back at least to the Beatles. There was a lot of devil sim- symbolism that went into old blues blues myths and were also picked up by Led Zeppelin. So what's the hard evidence for why people might be concerned or confused enough to think that there's something satany going on in rock music in 1983? What what led up to this moment? August 1969, I think is like this culmination of things in the same weekend, right? You have Woodstock on the East Coast and the Manson murders on the West Coast. Right. When you see the Manson family on the screen, how different do they look from some of the kids who had been at Woodstock? Exactly. It's the same kids. Yeah. And that was part of the urban myths I grew up with. Yeah. I remember being six and saying, oh, well, there are these hippies who killed all these women and carved their names. And and that was part of that pre-information age confusion That um, and I'm just talking about a six year old that that was two plus two equals uh, an, an obvious five. You know? Right, right. And I was scared of hippies when I was a kid. Even yeah. though my mother's friends were all hippies, essentially, if I saw a strange person with like long hair and barefoot or in sandals, I would be like, "Who's this guy?" Yeah. So you have that. I mean, so what's the what's the distinction? And I think that you also see, of course, right after or around 1970, 72, the political lines in the country are now becoming much more conservative in in some areas. So there is this sense in the air that these lines have to be drawn more strictly. And by what, 1980, you also have these parents who had experimented with drugs in the 60s and are starting to see the error of their ways, right? And they're trying to raise their children in an environment where they're not uh, exposed to this. It's uh, sure. There's that, that uh, uh, quote from uh, Frank Zappa where he says that LSD is the most dangerous drug because it turns a hippie into a yuppie. <laughs> 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 and you can, you know, you can see that, that coming out of it. And there's also that weird time in the 70s where you do have these sort of um, cults and this intense Christianity, sure. and it tries to blend youth culture specifically with oh, yeah. Christianity. I know some people around here who were involved with The Way, The Way Church. Yeah. Which was in Emporia, Kansas, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. It took over an old college yeah. in Emporia, Kansas. One of my friends was, mom was a Way Church person, and they went on some sort of weird pilgrimages or strange stuff. I, I think it's important to acknowledge here that... Um, well, one, that there was a lot of debauchery going on in yeah. rock and roll in the 60s and especially the 70s. Oh, yeah. But also there's a parental aspect. I mean, one, when I had this book and I was like 11 years old, one thing that my friend Keith, when he, he opened it book, he opened it up and I'm here, well, look at all this scary stuff that rock music, musicians do. And Keith, who listened to like Minute Work and Toto and, and like all the other stuff right. that 12-year-olds listened to in 1983, he opened it up and it's like, the Beatles, you know, like... <laughs> Like to him, it was just absurdly old, and so I think there's a dad rock aspect to this. That this was a previous generation's music, and that generation was sort of trying to young warn the younger people off of kind of its own music. I see. Right? Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, and there's no there's no uh, nostalgia 
there's no classic rock at this point. Not right? really, no. There's no sense in, in rehashing that. I mean, Led Zeppelin, of course, you know, is discussed quite heavily here. And in 1983, Led Zeppelin's broken up for, what, three years? Right. And that same time period, I remember what they were playing on oldies radio was from the 50s yeah. still. And, and into the early, like the pre-Beatles rock era was what was on the oldies station still. Right. Yeah, actually, Stephen Hyden, who whose episode will probably appear before this one in his new book, uh, Twilight of the Gods, talks about that distinction. Is that at some point there was oldies? Yep. I think he pinpoints Sergeant Pepper as the as the dividing line between oldies and what became classic rock. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so it was becoming a market share, and so I think it was being heard by twelve year olds. You could hear Stairway to Heaven five times a day, like yeah. like here in Wichita on, on the local uh, radio station. Still can. And I think a lot of those bands were playing that up in the 70s. I know that the Beatles, uh, when they were recording uh, Revolver, experimented a little bit with backward masking, almost in the same way that the Dadaists experimented with cutting up and making uh, collages and, sure. yeah. and doing sound poems and stuff, is that they saw as an artistic gesture. But I, I think what two things happened. One, before that, uh, there was a guy named, I think his name was, was it James Victor? He, um, in, the, in 1957, he did this study that, and convince people that the movies were telling you to buy more popcorn. Oh, the subliminal right? guy. Yeah, yeah, the subliminal yeah. guy, or drink more Coke based on these, not necessarily back masking, but different time, types of uh, subliminal persuasion. Would flash messages on the screen. Exactly. At super short duration so that you were supposed to not see them with your overt brain, but they would, again, be registered in some other part of your brain that works against you. Yeah, and he eventually admitted that he didn't have enough data to, right. to be that, but that became a part of the culture. Um, that that was just assumed. Again, it was almost it, there was an urban myth level to it, but it was a very pervasive urban myth. I wrote one of my research papers in high school on sublim the guy that wrote the books, subliminal seduction, media sexploitation, and the clam plate orgy, which were all how advertising in that case primarily had put a bunch of hidden stuff into things. To sell you things, and it turned out a lot of those were actually were at least quasi true. Yeah, but I think it was mostly advertisers seeing if it worked, and I don't know whether there was any data to support whether it really did or not. I think the I think too to to sort of go back for a second to the '60s and '70s and this idea of the the devil. Remember too that we also have Rosemary's Baby, right? The Stones, the, are, the Rolling <laughs> Stones, at Altamont and what year was Rosemary's death. Baby? Sixty-eight. Yeah. Okay. It was right before the Manson yep. murders because that was Roman Polanski's wife. Yep. Okay. Who was killed. And then The Exorcist, Omen. Yeah. These movies about the devil being on Earth. Right. And I, the, the Exorcist, the Exorcist was my other data point because I think there's a point in that movie where they play a recording backwards to find a hidden message. Yes. And so I think you had the Beatles uh, experimenting with backward masking as art. You had the idea that subliminal advertising was already selling us things. And then you had um, a, a recording being played backwards for its secret content in The Exorcist, which freaked the hell out of people, sure. including Ozzy Osbourne. He watched it 26 times, according to this book, Backwards Masking. Right. <laughs> and suddenly it, it planted a meme. You know, rock and roll was already sort of becoming degenerate by this time. And actually, punk rock, a few years later, sort of pushed back at the rock and roll level. But I think also as a conservative culture was pushing back against the hippie movement and this weird stuff and the Manson murders, is that they took all these data points and said, backward masking isn't just artistic representation. It's, in, it's seeding Satan into our subconscious. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a lot of bands had fun with that. I think a lot of... <laughs> 
the Black Sabbaths and the and and the ACDCs who came later, but um, Led Zeppelin and other bands liked to be a little bit incomplete in how they presented themselves. And it's like, oh yeah, well, um, I'm Jimmy Page and I do live in a castle. How about that? You I know? live in Aleister Crowley's <laughs> old house. Right. Actually. Yeah. Right. <laughs> What's funny is this book came the other day in the mail. And I was telling my girlfriend about it, and I said, you know, most of these bands that were doing that stuff were just doing it to be provocative or to be cheeky or whatever. I said, like, Styx made that whole theme album about rock and roll being banned in the future, and they put backwards messages on it on purpose just as a joke. And then I opened the book, and the first image in the book is from that album cover showing that they're they're admitting it right here. Right, right. It's like, do you not understand that it's satire, dude? Yeah. I mean, the, on the record, it was satire of the whole of stuff like this book and then it gets in the book well that's the author of this book is, is really deficient when it comes to irony yes uh and 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 even when it comes to metaphors that uh, that he just completely doesn't understand that even satan himself even when religious people invoke this name of satan they're sort of invoking it metaphorically more yeah. more so than uh, this red man who runs around and has the force horns. of evil in the universe, or right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, Satan has always been, uh, you know, this container that we use to hold our own poisons, right? And so, usually, when we're talking about Satan, we're talking about him at that level. But he takes a very literalist uh, reading of this. One thing about this sort of reading things, reading evil into backward music that's going backwards. That if you listen, actually, he played um, Queen and, and Led Zeppelin backwards at that church in Wichita in 1981 when I was there. And one, it's really creepy sounding, but two, you don't hear the message until he tells you what the message is, right? Right, right. And so it's this suggestibility thing. Ironically, this is the same Christian culture that sees the face of Jesus in a tortilla, right? That's true. And, and so there's this, this, this sort of suggestion that things are there that, that really aren't. It was the same era when people would queue up Dark Side of the Moon with um, the Wizard of Oz, yeah, and and find cosmic connections, Which is great. right? Well, I mean, actually, there was a I think Slate about ten or fifteen years ago did a thing where you watch any movie with the dark side sure. of the moon, and well. it seems like there's these connections are being made. And so I think as people were being able to curate their own popular culture in the early '80s with VHS type stuff. Um, and having more access to information, suddenly these urban myths seemed very real. It was years before that, the Wizard of Oz, you know, I, I, I bought, bought into that uh, whole hog. I thought that was really fascinating. I have a copy of it synced up on DVD at home. I watch from time to time, and it's really great. Yeah. But I always tell my son, my six-year-old, what uh, makes humans such a successful species more than anything else is our ability to have uh, pattern recognition. We find patterns like everywhere in nature and it put us at the top of the food chain. But it also can work against you because your brain will find patterns where none exist. And that leads you down all kinds of crazy roads. This is probably a good time to um, to bring in the idea that in retrospect, we can look at this book that was published in 1983 and think, what a bunch of horseshit. You know, what a bunch yeah. of how did anybody ever believe any of this? But, I chuckled a lot reading this. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a very credulous book. It's obviously somebody who's cobbling together evidence that Satan is behind rock and roll music. But after 1983, people didn't read this book and laugh. Actually, the satanic panic really yeah. happened after 1983. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder, speaking of data points, how books like this, which is, this is sort of a piece of folk art. It was published out of Shreveport, Louisiana. Sure. It was sold in churches. Um, I think it was passed from hand to hand. The same people who 
past those photocopied Procter and Gamble as evil type sheets that were going around oh, in I the remember 1980s. That too, yeah. you know, these other urban Amway myths. started that. Right. No, there, there was a lot of folk um, uh, moral panics and scares going on at well, the, the time. The copying machine was the first internet. And so satanic panic got worse. Yeah. You know, this seems like an absurd document. Like, how could anybody believe this? By the late 80s, Geraldo Rivera, is it Geraldo or Geraldo? Geraldo. Geraldo yeah. Rivera was doing exposés. 2020 had a piece on Satanism. They were lumping Dungeons and Dragons in with it, too. Yeah, now that, that whole thing, too, is that part of that thing where, oh, you're taking on a role and playing, and that's when they get you. When you, like, you go outside yourself and you're pretending, and then somehow that's how like, the devil gets into you. And so these fringe mimeographed ideas, you know, the, the crazy <laughs> yeah. lady at church telling you that D&D was bad, yeah. at, at the beginning of the 80s, by the end of the 80s, um, and we'll get to this eventually, but there was um, satanic ritual abuse. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and so let's, let's sort of trace a trail between um, backward masking en masse through the, the, the West Memphis Three sure. when uh, it later became a cause celeb. Not, these guys weren't let out of jail that long ago where, where three metal, heavy metal fan kids were basically arrested for torturing and killing kids uh, in West Memphis. And that was early 90s. And yeah. so and the other factor here that we can't discount is that rock and roll bands were milking it. Sure, of yeah. course. The idea... Wasp. Remember that guy? <laughs> right. Blackie, Blackie Lawless. Lawless. Blackie Lawless. Right. I, he scared me, and I was already kind of over. Like I was like, oh, okay, you know, this is, none of this is real. And then he, even him, I was like, mm, maybe this guy. He's got a <laughs> saw blade in his crotch. Yeah, well, yeah. I remember where I was. A guy with a T-shirt of that album cover showed up at the Wendy's at 21st and Amadon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how old I was, but I remember Still looking there. at that and thinking, oh, man, rock and roll is scary. Yeah. yeah. A radial arm, a radial saw for your crotch. Yeah. Anyway, um, it wasn't just Wasp, though, because the year that Backward Masking Unmasked was published, mm. Shout at the Devil yeah. by Motley Crue came out. The big pentagram on the cover. With a pentagram uh, on the cover. And in the beginning, before Shout at the Devil, the track, in the beginning was this sort of spoken word, almost church-like salutation, incantation at the beginning, about this sort of post-apocalyptic world <laughs> And then it ends with uh, some, something along the lines of rise, children of the beast, right. and shout at the devil. It be written, but those who have the youth have the future. So come now, children of the beast, be strong and shout at the devil. Even as a, as a, you know, a 13-year-old, I remember thinking, well, wait, aren't they saying to shout at the devil? See, that was me too. I was like, well, wait a minute. Are these guys pro or anti-devil? Like yeah. they're shouting at him. Are they like shouting him like high fives? Are they like you get out of here, devil? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 confusing. I think I think Nikki Six probably could have used a, <laughs> an editor, well, <Wow. laughs> somebody to kind of say, "Well, Nick, you you got to be clearer about this." You know, right. maybe go back and take a basic freshman comp class or something. It's going to look great on the album cover. Shout at yeah. the devil! Yeah, and I was disappointed in that because I had, I mean a year earlier I'd heard Iron Maiden number of the Beast, right? And again, which doesn't say like go out and worship the devil. It just says six 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 is the number. Tell of the them beast. the story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so Shout at the Devil was like intriguing to me because here these guys are in these photos in this post-apocalyptic and I can't determine if the blonde guy is a guy or a woman. Yeah, not exactly. 
And uh, their their fan club was Sin, S-I-N, Safety in Numbers. And I was like, ooh, this is very mm-hmm. mysterious. But then disappointed when I got the record because a lot of the songs were about sex, <laughs> which was kind of embarrassing at, right. at you know, 11 sure. years old or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so I think it was, it was in a way, Satanism was wrapping paper. You yeah. know, it was a way to make our parents alarmed. You know? right. And then actually in, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, the, the, the puritanical parents were alarmed by sex. By, by the 80s and 90s, those parents had actually gone through that era, and Satan was what was left to, to, right. to freak your parents out. <laughs> yeah. And so there was a lot of horseshit Satanism floating around. Sure. You know? But then what happened also is that you have the Satan aspect is less scary when it's a guy wearing makeup and spandex. Sure. Yeah. And it became campy. And so I think by the time MTV had really taken hold around the time of Shout the Devil, the 8-year-olds, the 10-year-olds were scared of Motley Crue. You know, the 15-year-olds and the, and the 17-year-olds thought they rocked, but didn't really believe that they were right. carrying forward the message of Satan. Yet, that I think that underpinned this satanic panic, um, where the religious people, the religious right, which was really on the rise and really had allies. In fact, I remember remember James Watt was the oh, secretary yeah. of Interior yeah. for the, for he hated rock so much that he banned the Beach Boys yeah, from playing yeah. at the White House. Yeah. And Reagan is like, no, no, I like the Beach Boys, right? And Mike They're loves a good California. Republican. Yeah, he is. They're a nice California bunch, you know. So there was a time when, and I'm, you know, the Republican Party started putting in the token evangelical. I mean, Ashcroft was the 2000s yeah. equivalent of this. And so you had people who were as earnest as Jacob Aranza, who really thought that Satan was this, is this guy in red skin running around getting into your mind. And it was dovetailing with... Um, all of this shock rock that was going on, you know, that people who clearly weren't into Satan nonetheless were sort of putting images of rebellion on television to the point where you get this nice senator's wife named Tipper Gore, yep. who is also taking the Motley Cruz at face value. And so you get this weird um, people who fully believe rock is evil, along with sort of clever marketers who are trying to take advantage of that. And then suddenly you get this weird satanic panic. Be- before we get there, I want to touch on a couple of, of items that, um, or at least one item that Jed brought up before we met, which is the movie Trick or Treat, which I'd forgotten about. Yeah, I never saw it. It's a movie, it's a horror movie, basically, that makes backward masking a part of its plot. Rock and roll will never die. At least not this Halloween. Inverted. Raising spirits from the dead by incantations, right? Yes. I did that by playing a record backwards. It's more like a John Hughes movie about yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> this. Like this metal head is getting picked on by the blonde jocks. And then and then there's also sort of a wow. manic pixie dream girl, like a, a, a girl from the jock crew who sort of is interested in him for some reason. And he's really into this sort of glam rock metal star who dies in a fire. The movie doesn't make any sense, right? Right. Dude. But backward masking is, is sort of embedded in it. Uh, and, uh, and so the DJ, who's played by Gene Simmons, gives the lead character this acetate record of the, like the last known recording of this dead rock star and then he he can he plays it backwards and the rock star starts talking to the kid oh my god and then they can talk back and forth and basically it's sort of this faustian bargain that the kid gets revenge on the high school bullies emboldened by the spirit of backward masking um and it's it's sort of a nonsensical movie but it's interesting was that 85 or 86 85 i believe yeah. wow. that, that basically the idea of backward masking was 
was fueling a cheesy horror movie where the, the televangelist is played by Ozzy Osbourne in a, in a cameo role. You know, I just remembered something. Before that, there was an episode of either Chips or Quincy. Quincy had the punk rock episode, yeah. so this must have been Chips. <laughs> and Donnie Most, who was Ralph Mouth on Happy Days, played Moloch, a devil rocker. That's right. And... Th- <laughs> These accidents, he drove up on a hearse and he had like a big red cape and the whole bit. And he was doing like it was kind of he was like a Alice Cooper, Ozzy Osbourne type. This must have been like 79 or 80, right? It had to have been. Yeah. And he uh, he's having these close call accidents. And uh, then finally they discover on his tape that's about to be his new album that's about to be dropped. There's backwards messages on it that are dropping clues that he's going to be killed. And it turns out like his manager is going to murder him and make it look like an accident. But but then they'll point out that it was prophesied on the album to spur to his album albums. sales. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, I just remembered that. What, what TV show was this? I, I think it was Chips. I think you're right. Chips. I'm going to embed both this and the Quincy Punk Rock <laughs> in the show notes because I think people just need to know the that Quincy these Punk exist. Rock, I saw both of these things in first run as a kid. Like I watched Quincy as a... 10 year old or whatever I was like religiously and I remember that punk rock episode and yep. when they throw the manager out of the moving car in that yep. right yep. oh yep. my god yeah well yeah as an aside it scared um, the shit out of me it, it's interesting <laughs> the parallel of course these both became both genres became Penelope Spheris documentaries in the 1980s you know punk decline of western civilization and metal was the sequel the metal years uh, but they're both sort of post sex uh, scare your parents type music you yeah. know that um, I, I think even Jacob Aranza talks about punk. He doesn't touch on punk, punk rock much because I, clearly he um, doesn't know anything about it. Right. But he, he talks about meeting these weird people in England where he was giving a sermon. And, I saw that. And, a guy come, and one of the punk rockers comes up and says, like hey, what's wrong with you, man? And that's his joke. Like right. a guy with a mohawk asked him what was wrong with him. But That feels made up. But um, <laughs> it, it's interesting at this crossroads that um, – that there were two types. Well, actually, you know, British punk was about the class system. You know, American hardcore had other um, issues that it took with. But part of it is the the excesses of seventies rock. If you listen to to teen idols, they have a song called "Deadhead." You know, that, that yeah. a lot of hardcore rock was making fun of this bullshit um, <clears throat> vacuousness. I mean, like punk rock was a kind of response that was parallel to Christians freaking out about it. So there's a lot of complexity going on at the time. The weird thing is that, you know, Trick or Treat was obviously sort of making fun of this phenomenon. This episode of Chips was also making fun of the phenomenon. You know, basically it's the capitalists at work trying to manipulate the backward masking to make money. It's like Scooby-Doo episode, practically. It turned out it was the manager all along. (laughs) Well, well, exactly. So the creators of the world, the artistic creators, were making movies and TV shows that satirize this. And, in fact, um, the B-52s, Weird Al had a song that said, like, Satan loves cheese whiz. Backward masked on a song he did in like 1984. Really, right? I don't remember that. Um, the B52s in, in like 85 had a backward mask thing that said, "Watch out, you'll ruin your needle." Right. <laughs> and Petra, a Christian rock band that was trying to pass themselves off as sort of the catch-all Christian journey, had a song called "Judas Kiss," which I used to listen to. It was sort of a rock and quasi-punk song that started out with a backward masking thing and if you reverse it it said what are you looking for the devil for when you should be looking for the Lord so even even Christian rockers were saying come on cut the bullshit and and let's get down to brass tacks the song that led to the PMRC being formed was Darling Nikki by Prince from 1984 which Tipper Gore happened to hear in the car and it mentions masturbation it's clearly dirty but then at the end it has that whole coda 
that's backwards. And, uh, and it's got the creepy backwards laughing. Ha, 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 ha. I mean, it was bad enough that the song was like really overtly dirty, but then now it's got all this creepy shit. And if you listen to that backwards, it says, hello, I'm fine. Uh, Cause I know my Lord is coming soon, coming, coming soon. And then goes into the ha 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 with the sound of rain backwards. So, and I, I think <laughs> this is, a, this is a key moment. Tipper Gore listening to that song she obviously had not watched Chips or, or <laughs> Trick or Treat and not realized the satire or even listened to Weird Al and realized how satirized this was at the time. So it's as if, you know, we talk about the culture wars that's going on right now, but it's as if these two different populations are not hearing the same thing. Right, right. And, and so, so you have Tipper Gore, but then you also have the uh, satanic ritual abuse people, which was a real problem, you know, that there was the, I forget which preschool it was, that they basically some guy got arrested on, people were going on Geraldo and saying that they were breeders for Satan and they right. were sacrificing their babies. And established, as you have already seen on this program, in courts of law now, that human sacrifice is sometime an element in rituals performed by people calling themselves Satanists. These women say they speak from personal experience. They claim to be breeders, forced by covens to bear children, both as a way for the cults to get new members and to find fresh victims for ritual murder. Did you give birth to infants who were sacrificed? To my first two. Um, so this, and there was, but there was I, never any of that actually was true though, right? Was any of it ever true? It, it was never proven. But let's dig into this a bit because there's there's so much to mock about this book that was written in 1983. This concept was being satirized in 84 and 85, even by Christian rockers. At the, but yet at the same time, Tipper Gore really thought that our children were going to be lost right. to rock music. And you had suicides uh, that were being blamed on Judas Priest and, and Ozzy Osbourne. Ozzy, yeah. Uh, and then you had this satanic ritual abuse thing that came in where basically sort of the religious right people had bypassed all the satire and were convincing school psychologists and police departments uh, and politicians that this was real, that, that there were – that actually th that there was sort of this – it's almost like a conspiracy theory, theory in, in retrospect that – uh, Satanism explained all of this bad stuff that was happening. And Jed, you, you mentioned this, uh, this documentary about Judas Priest, uh, which I watched and I think was really interesting. Yeah. So why don't you touch on this a little bit? Yeah, so you have this, this case of these uh, two young men in uh, it's Arizona, right? Uh, Nevada. Nevada. Yeah. Who have spent hours listening to this Judas Priest album, Staying Class, and they form this suicide pact. Uh, one of them is horribly maimed, the other one dies, and then this becomes this lawsuit against Judas Priest that, that this continued listening to this album has spurred in them this urge to commit suicide. Judas Priest band members were in court, their music on trial. Alongside them, two families claiming their sons committed suicide five years ago after listening to Judas Priest. Lawyers for the families claim the group put hidden subliminal lyrics into songs on their album Stained Class, a secret message that it's okay to take your own life. And the message was do it, do it. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. And, of course, the band is 
mortified by this. What? <laughs> you know, because A, because you've got, you know, you don't want to be blamed for somebody's suicide. And also this is like the I think the, I think the guys in Judas Priest say, you know, well, it would be kind of stupid for us to put messages in there for our fans to kill or kill themselves because, you know, we're trying to grow an audience as right. opposed to, right? So, yeah, you have this sense that, that that's going to come out, that that's in the music and it's embedded in there and that these kids who are on the edge are, are going to sort of topple over. The same thing with the, the Ozzy Osbourne suicide solution thing, which, of course, is a song about alcohol abuse. Right. But you have this, this guy who appears in this early 90s documentary on Ozzy, Just Say Ozzy, where he's saying, well, you can hear him. He's saying, get the gun, get the gun, shoot, shoot, shoot. Right. And it's like, no, you can't. No, you, no, you can't. But that fear and that idea that we're going to have to deprogram these kids away from this. And Suicide Solution was actually blamed for a suicide in Georgia about six months after the Judas Priest yeah. one in Nevada. So um, basically, at a time when, you know, who knows how many hundreds of kids were committing suicide in the United States every year, suddenly there were these two celebrity cases yeah. where the suicide in question was not pegged to various social factors, but was pegged to heavy metal music and right. sometimes specifically backwards masking. Yeah, and I can I can remember having debates with adults at this time who were like, you know, at that volume, those guys could be saying anything, and some kid who's vulnerable, he can just, you know, that's going to push him over the edge. Yes. Well, that the Judas Priest case in particular also became a source of satire, and in fact, it was a Dennis Leary routine from the early 90s where he says, this, this isn't Satanism, folks. It's natural selection, you know. Mm. Get, get your whole face in front of the shotgun next time, kid. Mm. So he was, you know, in a very acerbic way, was making fun of the idea that, yeah. that rock and roll, you know, so, somehow was the, the, the pure source of this. At the, at the same time that Dennis Leary's um, No Cure for Cancer album came out, which was that comedy album, there was a documentary called Dream Deceivers, um, which actually documents the Judas Priest uh, supposed influence on that suicide and the trial. Right. It's a fascinating documentary to watch because it really it shows family members get, getting on the stand. It shows family members talking to uh, the documentary crew, and almost without trying, they sort of implicate themselves in the troubled nature of this well, kid's you life. See the people that he lives with every yeah. day, and he's like, "Oh, now I know why you were driven to suicide." Yeah, so, it wasn't the music. Yeah, you know? almost yeah. just by letting these people talk, and it felt like they had been convinced, or they had convinced themselves that it really was about the rock and roll music. But it's just heartbreaking. The more this documentary goes on, the more you realize, man, this kid had to be around these people. And they're putting on, especially the kid's mom, she's putting on her best face, but it's clear that she's not being honest with anybody, including herself, and that this kid had a lot of problems. Yeah. And then the sister gets on the stand, another heart-wrenching scene, uh, and they're here, you know, she's saying something that sort of might say, I forget exactly what happens, basically the lawyer says, you tried to kill yourself four years ago, didn't you? And so he had, there was a suicidal sister. I think maybe there had been a suicide attempt before. Jeez. It was way more complex, way more complex than just rock and roll. That, yeah. that teen suicide, something that goes back to Romeo and, and Juliet, or at least the idea of it, yeah. suddenly became framed with, with heavy metal and well, backward masking. That's yeah. Because that's the kind of stuff that sells advertising. You know, That's the kind of stuff you can move newspapers and magazine stories on. And just, oh, uh, troubled youth in America who have family problems. Well, no one wants to read that. Everybody's got that at home. You know what I mean? If you can make it sensational, it's about this outside element that has blows fire out of its mouth and 
you know, might be covertly working for the devil, then that's way more interesting to read about than, you know, oh, people who have drunks that they live with or people who live with, you know, parents that have borderline personality disorder or poverty or whatever it that's, is. That's reality, and reality yeah. sucks. Yeah, right? yeah. no one yeah. wants to read about much that. much more interesting to, to bring in this, these weird English rockers who have embedded... Yeah. With new technology, have embedded these horrible <laughs> messages. Well, I can. I mean, I can remember my parents around this time applying for a job to work with troubled youths in a residential facility, and basically they would have, you know, they would have had like four or five kids in their care, living in quarters with us. And one of the questions I remember my mom explaining to me was like, "You you can't allow them to have uh, posters of rock bands or rock musicians on their walls." They can't listen to certain kinds of music and all this other stuff. And I'm like, you know, this is all stuff that's in my collection, and I'm not, right. I'm not getting in that much trouble. Um, and again, this is right before the internet. I think changed the nature of fact yeah. checking. Yeah. Um, I, I, I remember, mean, would think that would have helped. That having the internet at your disposal would have helped <laughs> everybody to with their fact checking, but it doesn't seem to have caught on at all. Well, this is a different era of fake news, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's the idea that law enforcement agencies had mimeographed manuals on how to recognize uh, Satanism. I've seen one from Wichita that was issued at some point. It's talking about Converse sneakers, like black shoes in general, black bandanas. There was a whole list of stuff that was supposed to be occult or gang related, and it was like. Wearing all black. I mean, you, like you can't Jed see me, right but... now is is head to toe in black actually at the moment. <laughs> well, this goes right up to the late '90s because the first news coming out of Columbine in 1999 was oh, the yeah. idea that these guys were wearing trench coats. Yeah. Um, and immediately it jumped on the same tropes that this isn't about parenting or mental illness. This is about goths, which, right. which you know yeah. sort of had taken well, the mantle easy. of metal. Again, it's easy yeah. to like, okay, we can put that in a shoebox and then sell it at 6 o'clock. Uh, and there's so much that's disingenuous about this book. Oh, yeah. Uh, and in fact, there's this seven-point list of being a rebel after he go, after the author talks about three pages of destroying the Amalekites in the Old Testament. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's the sign of, of rebels. Rebels never do all of what they're told to do. They, they're never completely honest with themselves or others. They are blame shifters, always placing the blame on others and not themselves it's like well okay that's that's number three on a seven point list it's like doesn't evangelical christianity do a lot of that uh, they they will give up wrongs but not their rights they are always questioning the authorities of others uh they are very prideful thinking highly of themselves and they are stubborn with their i am right you are wrong attitude <laughs> and so wow what is not how is that not like the same sort of bullies within an well, evangelical Christian world who is trying to sort of force God on people well, by scaring them the about problem rock music? With the whole God thing in general and across the board is like when you really believe that you're on God's side or you're aligned with them, then everybody else is wrong. Yeah. And as there's no question in their mind about it. So I mean, it really throws a monkey wrench in all kind of rational human interaction. And, and God makes you normal. Or, or, well, or, or chosen in the same way that the KISS Army. The idea that being traditional is normal, I guess, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that was the weird thing. So much of what he characterizes, like when he sees the punks in England, it's, it's almost like, well, shouldn't it be evident? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? You know, I'm, I'm the normal person. Right. And so it, I guess there's sort of a, a tribal aspect of it. And coming full circle... Um, I don't know how much re um, research you've done about this in retrospect of what happened to the satanic panic. It, it fizzled. It was sort of dis discredited, you know, sort of in that child care uh, ritual abuse 
court case. Those people were acquitted. Years and years later, the West Memphis Three were acquitted. And now you can go on. I might point out that the last chapter in Backward Masking Unmasked is Jacob Aranza's personal testimony, which in evangelical circles, it's about how you found the Lord, how you became a Christian. I never read that when I was 10. Even when I was scared of all this stuff, I just wanted to look at the pictures of the rock stars and be scared and learn more about who ACDC was. That personal testimony he tells on page 114 of this book, um, he still tells that on his YouTube sermons. It's the exact same personal testimony about finding God in high school. And I saw an interview with him where he admitted something. They were trying to scare kids into church through what they were interested in. It's like if kids are interested in rock and roll, we're going to take that interest and convince them that that is dangerous to them and that they should fear what they love, and then we'll get them in the pews, and then we'll make sure that they graduate from high school and become responsible citizens. I mean, there's something very yeah. utilitarian about, yeah. about all of this. Just as Jesus preached. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exact Sermon on the Mount, they talked a lot about that. Yeah. Tricking kids out of their, <laughs> tricking kids out of their, their cassettes and records. First, you and, get the van, <laughs> <laughs> then you get the candy. Exactly. Blessed are the backward maskers. Exactly. Yeah. Can I just say that that uh, it, in its way, heavy metal had this opposite effect to me because I can remember buying Metallica's Master of Puppets, and uh, uh, I think it's, I think it's the song Leper Messiah, which has the time for this, time to da da da. And I was like, I asked my mom, I said, what? I've heard that before. And she goes, oh, that's Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Right? The birds. Just like right? the birds, yeah. Yeah. So I like, I go to the Bible that um, this this guy gave me in seventh grade. This is, I'm now like a year or two later. And I'm like, oh, son of a gun. And I start reading. And I go, wow, that's kind of interesting literature. And I go back and I listen to other Metallica songs like Creeping Death about killing the firstborn son. And I'm like, what? The? <laughs> so everything I needed to know about the Bible, I basically learned through Metallica lyrics. Sure. <laughs> Well, it's like that scene, that scene in, in the movie Clockwork Orange where when the guy is not given any literature um, in his confinement, you know, uh, he's given the Bible and he loves the Old Testament because oh, it's yeah. all about yeah. sex and, and killing, <laughs> exactly. right? Yeah, yeah it's brutal. Uh, I think that's – Metallica is a good point because, like, as I was going to Fellowship of Christian Athletes meetings in high school, I listened to Master of Puppets to get psyched up for my track meets, right? That sometimes metal – you can't understand the lyrics anyway. It's about feeling edgy. You know, yeah. in college, Pantera replaced Metallica. And it helped me navigate my that coil of energy that you have as a young man, you know, that, that somehow um, it didn't make me question God. It just made me get pumped up. Gotcha. Yeah, sight. Yeah. yeah, it's sort of, sort of the chemical music. lizard brain level of being a kid. I used heavy music to navigate my my young manhood. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Iron Maiden, uh, uh, you know, the songs like Flight of Icarus and Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, I suddenly said, where did this come from? Murders and, in the Rue Morgue. Right. And that led me across the street to the library. Right. I'm going, you know. So for me, it was a very, like, sort of empowering path to a kind of intellectual life that I wasn't necessarily getting in school because yeah. in school, it was like, you know, Bogwin, when, go When the teacher go tells the you to yeah. uh, read... <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe or, yeah, it's like, eh, whatever. But, yeah, when Bruce Dickinson tells yeah. you, <laughs> yeah, by God. I actually came through that by the police, which are not as scary, right? right. Not right. as scary as, I don't as, know. as Iron Maiden Have or whatever. Sting solo work? <laughs> but uh, I, I love the entry in this book about the police because he doesn't really know what's going on. <laughs> 
Um, they're hard to pin down. It's like they're called uh, the police, but they're not. Well, he says, yeah. my caution about this group is simple and practical. Watch out for the police. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just good advice. <laughs> Very prescient. But it, yeah, he, like Sting is a sex symbol. I mean, that's really all he has on the police. Right. But yeah, I, I went to, I read Lolita because of the police, right? See, you there know, you go. I knew, I, I had to figure out what the Scylla and Charybdis was. Uh, I read uh, The Stranger because of the cure. Yeah. That's yeah. absolutely true. So, so I think that there's a simplistic, there's a simplistic way that adults superimpose how young people listen to music as just this bad thing, when in fact um, it's a way of engaging with the world. You know, it's, sometimes it's at a visceral level, and sometimes it's it's at an intellectual level. Uh, and I think people don't give young people enough credit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely. True. What's the legacy of this? That obviously this was a meme. You know, right. this was a meme of its time. It started out as a, as a two-staple uh, booklet that I read in 81. It became a book in 83. It may have influenced police investigations later yeah. in the decade. Yeah. Um, well, now, in 87, I was seeing a very sincere and thoroughly, like, researched and well-produced presentation about it by a group. And that was years later. Yeah, uh, you'd think by then that that might have worn off, but instead it was really just kicking into gear. I think, yeah. and yet it evaporated. You never, you don't hear uh, right. about this anymore. But you see, corollary um, moral panics and credulity and fake news right now. So well, I think now we've just regressed back as a society to the point where it's now just back to like being anti-immigrant or being anti atheist or being anti-brown people or whatever. And you know what I mean? That seems to be like the panic in our society now is that we're trying to make America some sort of great that it never was. Yeah, prof- pro- professional athletes protesting Yeah, has our, I mean... Our hackles up. Yeah. And that's like one of my episodes on this podcast was an hour of talking about the, the National Anthem's history. Right. It's very detailed history as a protest song. Uh, and, you know, its reactions when it was put on electric guitar. Um, and I think in the same way that nobody looked in, well, actually in the same way that you could look at satire of backward masking and Satanism in 1985, at the same time that the Tipper Gores of the world, a Democrat wife, were seeing it in a very literal sense, there were two cultural conversations going on. The same thing is happening. The people who are bent out of shape about the national anthem don't care about the history of the national anthem and no. how it was used by abolitionists in the day and how actually it wasn't used in the NFL until the 80s. In the 70s, sometimes they would play America the Beautiful or, or sometimes they wouldn't play anything before the game. Yeah, um, it, It's this America idea that we keep waking up into our own innocence and thinking that, we're, you know, that suddenly this new thing is going to, to bring us down. I think also the, the, the uh, I'm of the opinion that... Um, Music has become much more disposable. Um, it's not something that yeah, you you do have people who collect vinyl, but for the average person, I mean, think about the people who in and Haydn brings this up in his book as well. Thriller. How many people were going out in 1983 and 82 and buying a copy of Thriller a week? It was in every home or Pyromania. Right. Right. Now it's on Spotify. Now music is piped in yeah. at the gas station. Even if you own a copy, it's still not a physical copy. Right. You know. So it's become this sort of disposable thing, and it doesn't unite us in the same way. I'm not 
buying a copy of Dark Side of the Moon and saying to you guys, hey, why don't you guys come over? I'm going to crack this open and we'll sit down and listen to it. It is, you listen to it on your computer. Right. You listen to it in your car. You get a text and someone sent you a link to a YouTube video of it. Exactly. That you can watch on your tinny little crappy phone. Yeah. So it doesn't have that same overwhelming kind of capacity, I think, to unite people, whereas something you see on TV, a meme on the internet, right. what have you, that's much more... Yeah, I, I read strange. I read something recently. I don't know if it was Haydn, but it was a similar sentiment that basically he confessed that he had a more intimate relationship with albums that he hated in 1990 yeah. than <laughs> his favorite albums of 2018. Well, there you right? go. Yeah. Um, and that ties into the, we talk about how this backward masking book is sort of a folk product of 1983. Well, so was the cover of of Thriller. You know, when you when you um, went to the store and bought Thriller and played it, you didn't look at stuff on your phone you opened the album cover yeah. it was a it was folk literature it was folk art and you looked at every single detail of the album cover of thriller yeah. read the liner notes yeah see who yeah. played on it i mean jethro toll's uh, thick as a brick album right is is a newspaper it's yeah. like a community newspaper and you can open it it's hilarious yeah it's a whole piece of literature unto itself. Sure, I have that Fugs album. Uh, it crawled into my hand, Honest, and it has like a fake kind of like street newspaper of the late 60s in it. And it has all these personal ads that are hilarious and things like that in it. And tons of just random jokes yeah. slipped into the liner notes. And you I read it a bunch of times. And then you still see, oh, so, oh I don't know if I ever noticed that before. You yeah. Know? yeah. So does music still have the power to terrify people? Or are we back to these basic, pre, you know, bigotries like getting bent out of shape over immigrants? Do you, do you think somebody could put out a, an, an album or create a new genre of music that mm. could create a, a moral panic, or is this uh, a relic? Well, you have black Norwegian black metal in the '90s, right? Yeah, and where, bands like Deicide from Florida and like yeah. all those the where, Bob Larson bands. Yeah, where guys in Norway are going around and burning churches in the middle of the night. And literally murdering yeah. in some cases. <laughs> yeah. Does that still happen though? It, do, it does not happen. And, and, and I think the, the reason that that didn't necessarily catch on in the same way is because the music was incomprehensible. Yeah. It's not a accessible kind yeah. of music. It really. doesn't, it doesn't have any sort of commercial appeal. And you know, frankly, when the Swedish band Marduk puts out an EP and calls it Fuck Me Jesus and it's a woman masturbating with a, a crucifix, I saw that in The Exorcist. Right. You know, so 45 years ago. Yeah, it's it's just a riff. It's, I mean, it's postmodernism in a way. It's a riff on something that already happened and you're just trying to reiterate it. And why why would I want that when I could have The, the Exorcist still scares the hell out of me yeah. and Marduk I look at it and I yeah. go you guys are just playing you're like you and me I know you change your kid's diaper <laughs> exactly <laughs> you don't sacrifice him <laughs> there's a whole other chapter that like when gangster rap really freaked people out in yeah. the 90s well and yeah. rap but, still freaks people out I think because again because of the innate racism of our culture yeah. right well I, I was just and we can think out loud about how that stands now but also rap is dad rock too yeah oh yeah to, to a yeah. certain the extent kind of rap that i like which i'm a big hip-hop fan but it's just like 
I talk about Eric B and Rakim and like those younger kids are kind of like either they are like they don't know who I'm talking about or they're like really impressed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Kumo D is like the Perry Como. It's <laughs> it's true. Well, and then and then, you know, and NWA is like the Metallica oh, yeah. And, yeah. and the Ghetto yeah. Boys are the Slayer because they came in and just just as um horror movies were finding themselves in metal songs, action movies and and shoot 'em up um, entertainments were finding gangster movies were were, were suddenly being uh, music, you know. Yeah. And I think the racial component freaked people out, and it, and it was a different kind of fear. That just when we learn not to fear the this the skinny, dorky, Rico Kasich looking rock star people, then mm-hmm. suddenly there are these. There's these, Easy E and Ice Cube with the shades on, and you know, and they're cursing hard on the record, and they're shooting people and slapping women, and I mean, and the lyrics, and I was all like, oh shit, what is this? I remember it being. Thinking it was like very aggressive, and you know, I, I kind of flipped me out a little bit at first. Yeah, so so it's basically there, and of course, you think of 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 Ice Cube. You know, he went to drafting school and stuff, so yeah. he was he had a persona. His gangster persona was yeah. well, was f- was fictive, just Disney like, movies and stuff. Now, you know, he's like yeah. ultimate yeah. dad rock guy. You know, so I think it's about the stories we tell. Is that sometimes every once in a while, musicians could tell a convincing story that was scary. Um, and and again, I'll I'll throw it back out. In in 2018, is is there anything scary out there? Or are we so compartmentalized in how we find music that it's just something that that plays in the background while we obsess about other things? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I I I th- I don't think that there's that mystique. I mean, uh, uh, again, uh, you know, you go back to Led Zeppelin and that that book it came out in '85, Hammer of the Gods, oh, right? Yeah. I read it, which takes its title from. What are you asking, Robert Plant? What do you want? Power, mystique, hammer of the gods, and there's, <laughs> and, and which I try to get. You know, when when I go out to eat and they say, "What can I help you with, sir?" I try to use that line, but it, <laughs> it, it, it never works. Uh, but but I mean, there's the whole thing in there about how those guys probably maybe sold their souls to the devil, except for John Paul Jones, because nobody knows him, right? No, he's a, he was the studio guy. He was yeah. along for the ride, right? Yeah, and. I remember reading that and kind of going, you know, I mean, look at all the bad stuff that happened around them. Oh yeah, the you know car, that could, car crashes, children dying. Yeah, that know, could be the mean, that could be, but then you could say the same thing about Def Leppard, and yeah. I don't think that those guys sold their soul no. to the devil. There's just I just don't think that there's enough mystique, really. Well, it's the SoundCloud era too, where yeah. it's just like you can be Post Malone and just be some nerd from Texas or wherever, and put a joke hip hop song up online and suddenly you're like a, a big pop star overnight. Yeah. You yeah. know, there's little mystique in that. You yeah. Know? And some of that I think is, is good because I think it's nice to have people music demystified and it's not something that's, you know, maybe that's like the old folky punk rocker kind of kid in me. It's good to, that we can identify as just regular people out there making music and like, Oh, you had a hit record. Cause what you did, you know, resonated with a lot of people. That's great. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, there's not that many people putting on a, a persona, and and when they do, I don't like it. Like Father John Misty. Yeah. I dislike it intensely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really thought for many years that David Bowie might actually be an alien. You, yeah. You can't be blamed for that. <laughs> I mean, it was like, you know, Aladdin saying that yeah. scared me. He that terrified me. Definitely freaked me out. I saw him on that early Saturday Night Live thing where he was on the green screen with, like, the puppet body or whatever. I saw that as a kid, and I was like, what? It really unsettled me, genuinely. 
Actually, in retrospect, the most disturbing thing about David Bowie was not that he w- might have been an alien, but he was dating 14-year-olds. Well, know? he was a rock star <laughs> in the day. That was a time when nobody, you know, well, I'm just like saying, in this book says the yeah. Beatles did that too. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. And I think that, that ties into the, the mystique. It's like the standard for judging people is different. You know, yeah. the, the mystique is gone. We're not going to judge right. them by whether or not they're sacrificing babies in, in the basement. Didn't uh, Ted Nugent marry a teenager? Like, yeah, he, who, like, who he had for a period of time legal custody of. Yeah, he legally adopted and married. She was underage, right? I mean, it's like, I'm not defending any of that. Don't yeah. get me wrong. But, I mean, it was just like in the 70s. That was like the lowest priority that anybody would be mad at you about way after Satan. Yeah. I think there's something to be said about just the passage of time, too. Uh, another thing that Stephen Hyden brings up is that these are graying guys, you know, that they're, they're these old rockers who scared people back in the day <laughs> uh, are shifting off their mortal coil. And I, mem- I remember listening to the radio stations at the far left of the dial here in Wichita way back in the day. It's what my grandma listened to. It was like this big band stuff mm-hmm. that probably freaked her parents out when she was a flapper. Mm-hmm. And I think... To, to, to belabor that metaphor, this sort of music is in going to the left of the information age dial. You know, it's just it's just wallpaper. It's something that happened once. And um, we'll have to find our terror and our moral panic someplace else, unless you guys disagree. Uh, I don't know. I'm not looking for a moral panic, yeah. personally. <laughs> personally, I think we should uh, write a pilot of an HBO series about the satanic panic and... I think so. We'll cast Jacob Aranza. Well, uh, thanks. <laughs> He's still around. <laughs> Get Ted Nugget. Ted Nugget. I, th- I think I, I think we should we should create a, a sitcom with Ron Henley <laughs> and Ted Nugget. Mm. Ted Nugget. And I think Netflix. It'll be it'll, they'll be like satanic panic detectives who are off getting to the bottom of Man. this ritual baby Reading sacrifice. Through. I like where you're going with this. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow with sound engineering assistance from Torin Anderson of KMUW Studios in Wichita. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.